As we began this, at the beginning of this letter, we began a, a sermon series, which will be intermittent, but will continue as the Lord allows, as I am here with you. So we look tonight to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Hear now the word of our God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Sends the reading of the Word of God. Let us ask His blessing now in the time of prayer. We ask now, O Lord, that You would give us Your Holy Spirit, that You would illumine our hearts and our minds to understand, receive, apply Your Word with all faithfulness and all obedience. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, division is one of the hallmarks, one of the characterizing features of the world that we inhabit. On on nearly every issue imaginable, whether religious or ethical or political or even mundane, uh, you can easily identify various parties which seem to be forever at odds with one another. Even this past week, have perhaps seen some of the deep ideological and ethical fissures which exist in our society. It's obvious that we are not all on the same page. And that seems to be just the way things are in this dog-eat-dog world which is under the curse of sin. But unfortunately, the dividing lines which permeate our world are not just out there, Oh, they certainly are out there. It would be nice to say that all the church of Jesus Christ is always of one mind, even if the world hates us for it. But perhaps you know from your own experience, sometimes the division of the world creeps in through the back doors of the church. Now sometimes this division is, is wholly unnecessary. If there really have been churches split over the color of of the carpet, as is often said to be the case, and for the record, I don't doubt it, that's unnecessary and sinful division. And yet at times, we find, and and the Word of God gives a testimony to this, division is an inevitable necessity. For example, if, if half of the congregation came to church next Sunday insistent upon the fact that we merit salvation by our good works, we would be inevitably 
and necessarily divided. Those people would either have to be won back or sent out. So in this sin-cursed world, uh, division is a reality both outside and inside the church. And along with it comes isolation and confusion and distress. It, It leads to heartbreak. It leads to broken relationships. And if you look out on this world, plagued by these sorts of division, there seem to be no solutions. There seems to be no tie which bonds. There seems to be no common ground upon which we are all standing. If anything, it seems as if the gaps are increasingly widening. The question we must ask then is, do the Scriptures speak to such a problem? And when we begin to read through the words of 1 John, we find that the answer to that question is an unequivocal yes. See, 1 John was probably among the last, or one of the last at least, of the New Testament books to be written. Penned by the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee in his old age, that same beloved disciple who wrote the fourth gospel. This letter reflects John's pastoral care for a church which was divided, which was situated in a world which was divided. Likely written to the churches in the region around Ephesus, a group which had professed to be Christian had gone out of the church. This is described, I think, fairly clearly in 1 John chapter 2. Based on what we read over the course of this book, it appears that they were teaching... On the one hand, falsehoods about God's law. They, they didn't believe that uh, obedience to it was uh, perhaps so necessary. And they were teaching falsehoods about Jesus Christ. They didn't really believe that Jesus was the Son of God come in the flesh. So consequently, they had departed. They had gone out from the midst of the church. There was a divide. There was a necessary divide. And the question for the churches was which side of the divide would they wind up on? Would they follow Christ? Or would they follow antichrists, as John will speak about? Would they remain in fellowship with Jesus and His apostles? Or would they isolate themselves from the people of God? Would they love the saints? Or would they love the world and its glittering, shimmering treasures? These were questions that required answers. And and, and with these questions on the table, John wrote to the church to show them clearly what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He wrote to show them clearly what was required to be in fellowship with the risen Lord. And so he called them back, he was calling them back, to the true unity which is only available to those who profess genuine faith in the one Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, we would do well, as those living in the world divided, to consider where we stand. We would do well to heed the words of of John, either receiving assurance that we are in Christ, or being warned that we are lost as those walking in darkness. And that, uh, that sort of uh, assurance or a warning begins in the opening lines of this letter as John declares that true fellowship 
and unity are based on faith in the incarnate Christ. We might summarize the message of 1 John 1, 1 1-4 in this way. John proclaims to us the life made manifest. Jesus Christ come in the flesh so that we might have fellowship with God and with the church. And as we consider this life made manifest, as John here refers to the incarnate Christ, we observe four aspects tonight of John's teaching about that life. First we see the life which was from the beginning. Second, we're going to see the life which was made manifest in the flesh. Third, we see the life which is proclaimed in the church. And finally, we see the life which leads to joyous fellowship. First of all, then, we see tonight the life which was from the beginning. This is described both in verse 1 and also in verse 2. John speaks in the opening lines of this letter of that which was from the beginning. It might not be immediately clear to us of what or of whom John is speaking. It might feel like we are beginning this letter in the middle of a thought. So we're left to put together the pieces as these opening verses rush over us like a whirlwind. However, when we recall that the same man who wrote this letter also wrote the Gospel of John, we are given a significant hint as to what he is talking about when he speaks of that which was from the beginning. Think back if you're familiar, I assume you are, with the opening words of John's Gospel. And you see there that it is nothing new for John to start his writings at the very beginning of time. There, uh, if you'll recall, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And while that too might strike us as a bit abstract, John chapter 1 verse 2 indicates that he was speaking about a person. He says, He was in the beginning with God. So when John spoke about that which was from the beginning in his gospel, he was speaking about a person, and that person was the Son of God. So it is here. Some commentators have argued that in our text, John is only talking about the beginning of Christ's earthly life. And there are, of course, times in this letter when John speaks about the beginning of Christ's earthly life. But I think the broader context here proves that he is thinking of the pre-incarnate state of the Son of God who existed from all eternity. We see this supported, you'll notice, in verse 2. As John refers to this one who was from the beginning, the life made manifest as the one who was with the Father. It's the one who was with the Father. That language uh, is, is a reflection of the language which we find in the opening chapter of John's Gospel. So prior to taking on flesh, the Son of God existed from the beginning with the Father. Therefore, we must see from the outset of this letter, brothers and sisters, that John is proclaiming to us a high-stakes message. This is an old, old letter. But this is not the ramblings of someone who is concerned about a temporary blip 
on the radar of, of history. Now, the one of whom John speaks is the eternal Son of God. He is the one of uh, whom the Creed speaks as begotten of His Father before all worlds, by whom all things were made. So John writes of this life, which was from the beginning. The one through whom, as the rest of the Scriptures attest, life was brought into this world. The one upon whom we are dependent every single moment for our existence and our life. And understood in this way, we begin to realize that the message of which John is concerned in 1 John... There's no more important message in the world. It's a message with life or death consequences. As John demonstrates throughout this book and as we will see in weeks ahead. We also see that John is not writing of one who has existed eternally somewhere out there in the invisible ether, never to be known to us. He writes of the life made manifest in the flesh which is the second observation which we ought to make tonight of this passage. What do we mean when we speak of the life being made manifest? Well, we mean that at a particular point in human history, the one who was from the beginning took on human flesh in a way that could be observed. The one who was invisible was visibly Revealed. Uh, notice in the text there the piling on and the repetition of sensory language which takes place in verse 1. John speaks of that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. These are points which he repeats again in verse 3 as he speaks again of that which we have seen and heard. John was here in the opening of his letter at great pains to express the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we're going to see later in this letter, there were those who were casting doubt on that fact. You see, we live in a day and age in which you look at the unbelieving world, they typically cast doubt on the divinity of the godness, if you will, of Jesus, if they believe that he existed at all. But in those earliest days of the church, it was just as likely that someone would deny the truthfulness of his humanity. Now listen to the condemnation which John would be forced to utter later in 1 John chapter 4. He says this, Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So those who were willing to confess that the life made manifest was from God, uh, they, they were from God rather, and those unwilling to confess the life made manifest were not from God. So we see here in the Scriptures that it makes all the difference in the world whether or not you view Jesus Christ to be a true historical figure. You often hear people make remarks about, well, I don't believe that he was really God, and I don't believe that he was 
really raised from the dead, and I don't really believe that He did the miracles, and I don't really believe that He walked on water, but I think we can get a lot out of Him. He taught a lot of good things. It doesn't work like that. When we come to the New Testament, we are not presented with a bare, abstract idea. We are not given a mere philosophy. We're not simply given a way to live. We are given a person. A true, historical, flesh and blood person. That matters. So even though this letter is not a systematic theology, it's in the first couple of lines, the first couple of phrases in this letter, John is providing us with the component parts which are necessary to make up a biblical doctrine of Christ. As the one who is from the beginning, He is eternal and divine. He existed with the persons of the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity as the one God. But in the fullness of time, He was made manifest as He took to Himself a true human nature along with all of its essential properties. That's, that's what took place as He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, as we often confess together here. And so put more simply, the eternally begotten Son took to Himself everything which was necessary for a human to be a human, and yet amazingly, He did so without sin. And even when this manifestation, or incarnation to use, uh, the more common language, took place, He did not cease to be God. Said he continued to be one person, Son of God. Jesus Christ come in the flesh with two distinct but inseparable natures, the divine and the human. That's a lofty message. And it is hard, we must confess, to wrap our minds around all of the intricacies of that. But that's what, or, or better, who, John had seen. He had heard His voice. He had heard the teachings. He would heard the preaching. He had had private conversations with this one whom He is writing. He had seen His face for years. He had walked beside Him. It even says here in the text, the one which they had heard and seen with their eyes and looked upon, they also touched with their hands. Think, for example, of that marvelous story in John's Gospel where we read at the Last uh, Supper the way in which the beloved disciple, who was himself John, leans back against the breast of his Lord and his Master. This was life. The one who was alive eternally and through whom life came to be manifested in the flesh in the course of human history. But this was not a manifestation which was for the sake of just a few, which you might be led to believe, given the words which we have here. John presents this as a personal experience which he had along with others. But as John makes clear, it was this life which was made manifest that he intended to testify to as an eyewitness and to proclaim as a gospel preacher. So we see in the third place in our text, the life which is proclaimed in the church. 
This, this, is the, this is the testimony, as we read in verses 1 to 4, of an eyewitness. And this, this is the sort of eyewitness testimony which ought to be received by us as a great and a wonderful blessing. We, we do not live at a time when we can visibly see Jesus. We can't touch His body. We can't hear Him speaking to us. Instead, He is revealed to us through the Word of God. Uh, and, and many skeptics today act as if this is one of the great and fatal flaws of Christianity. But this was a reality that the writers of the New Testament, you see, were already acknowledging. This is not a surprise to later generations of Christians, or at least it ought not be, because John understood the situation. It was not something he was embarrassed by. Instead, we see here John recognizing that the face-to-face interactions which he had with Jesus were unique experiences, afforded only to those in the apostolic age who had lived during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, as soon as we say that, we must say that that does not mean that Jesus is inaccessible to us. Uh, No, we we await tonight his, His bodily return. But we, even now, have the privilege of experiencing His presence through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells His disciples in John 16, 7, I'll tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. He speaks about the Helper here. He's talking about the Spirit which He sends to be present with us. So, brothers and sisters, when we speak of the unique experiences which John had, we're not being cheated of Christ's presence. But it's simply true that we don't experience it in the same way in which John had. Uh, both of those things are true. And notice that this would have been true for many of the first readers of this letter as well. Most scholars argue that this was a letter which was written sometime between A.D. 85 and 100. Uh, John is reported to have lived to a very old age. And so that means that there would have already been many in the church who were born after, after Christ had already ascended to heaven. That's the situation in which we find ourselves tonight. So it was for their sake and for ours that John provides this sort of eyewitness testimony, which unfortunately tends to be devalued in our scientific age. John here is giving us the sort of proof which would have been considered the gold standard in the first century. He wants us to know, I saw him, and I was not the only one. Notice all the plural language here in our text. We have heard, we have seen, we looked, we touched. John was but one member of that great apostolic cloud of witnesses which had seen Jesus live and then die and then rise and then ascend to heaven. He wants us to know that the one who was alive from all eternity became the life made manifest in the flesh in a verifiable way. There may have been already, we know there were, naysayers in the first century But John is writing to tell the church, they are wrong. And I know it. That was his testimony, that was the message 
which he proclaimed. The life made manifest, the incarnate Christ, stood at the center of John's message. Verse 1 tells us that he wrote concerning the word of life. Put another way, he wrote concerning the, the word which gives or produces life. So the eternal word was manifested in time and the apostolic announcement and the apostolic preaching of that manifestation was bringing forth new life. And notice how in this flurry of ideas and concepts and phrases here in this unique section of this letter, how John begins to put all of these pieces together as he connects the identity of Christ to the manifestation of Christ to the proclamation of Christ in verse 2. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You see there, he's taking all of these pieces and he's bringing them together and showing us the intimate connection there is between the manifestation of Christ in the flesh and the preaching of that message to the world. And given all that, John could proclaim to the church eternal life. That's what he says. Testify to it, verse 2, and proclaim to you the eternal life. Once again, this sounds abstract. Given everything that we've seen, he's talking clearly about a person. Read right in context, it's clear that Jesus is the life made manifest, and he is also the eternal life of whom John writes. That's good news for us. Because it means that when we come to Christ by faith, we come to the one who is himself life and the one who grants eternal life to all who believe. To put it, um, perhaps catching all of these threads related to life, we, we might put it this way. John wants you to know that Jesus is the life-giving life preached in the word of life, in whom sinners can be made alive. Uh, if that's not clear, that's uh, essentially what John's saying. Jesus is the life. He gives life. We preach Him in the word of life. And through that preaching, sinners come to life. To reject one like that is to choose death. Do you believe that? Have you been forgiven of your sins and made alive by the Son of God? Or are you looking forward to the eternal life which is epitomized in Jesus Christ? Your answer can be yes if you've trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation because He is the life to whom John testifies. He is the life which John proclaims. But we see that this proclamation was not a matter of mere philosophical speculation. As, as high as John's thinking is here, he has very practical aims in mind. As we see in the fourth place, this life which is claimed is a life which leads to joyous fellowship. In this way, John begins to unveil for us the only solution to the sort of division which constantly threatens to throw us into confusion and in disarray. This is evident from the latter half of verse 3 and also from verse 4. When John proclaimed the life made manifest, he did so 
what he says here in the text, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now remember, it's clear, as we've stated briefly, from the contents of this letter, that there was a, if you want to call it a splinter cell, which had broken away from the church because of false teaching and disobedience. They had removed themselves. They had gone out from the church and from the body of Christ. And the question which remained, he answered, was, would those who were left remain in fellowship with Christ and His church, or would they too end up on the wrong side of the divide? John writes in order to show these believers the right way and to provide them with, with, as we'll see in the letter, several means of assurance whereby they might know that they were truly in fellowship with God. And we see here from the outset of this letter, it was only by remaining committed to the message which had been preached by John the churches would, in fact, be able to enjoy Christian fellowship. Now, to speak of this sort of fellowship, which John here introduces in, in verse 3, is not merely to speak of uh, sort of recreational activities at church, which is sometimes how we use uh, the language of, of fellowship. Uh, rather, it's, it's, that, that's uh, a tangible expression of the fellowship which we have, but when John speaks of fellowship, he's speaking of a bond of trust and love shared by those who have been united to a common Lord. And so to reject the proclamation of the life made manifest and the fellowship which came with it was to reject a a living relationship with Jesus and with His people. That's that's what John is driving at in verse 3. So you can see then that the division which was taking place in the churches to which John wrote, it was not a color of the carpet disagreement. It was a sort of disagreement whereby those who left chose the world over the church. By denying the biblical doctrine of Christ, these wolves in sheep's clothing had exposed themselves as those who were not in fellowship with the truth. And so John wants to warn those who remain and to encourage them to press on, united with one another, even as they are divided from those who have departed. They could not remain in fellowship with those who had rejected Christ. But they could experience a newfound and a refreshed sense of communion with the saints who remained. So ask yourself tonight, the question which John is is already sort of pushing us to ask in the opening of this letter, are are you in fellowship with God and His church or not? The only way to be in fellowship with God, to to receive His benefits, is to lay hold of the eternal life which is proclaimed in our text. You must come into fellowship with the eternal Son, having received the gospel message which has been preached beginning in the apostolic age and then down through the ages. And if you claim to be in fellowship with God, are you in fellowship with the church? Are you in fellowship with God's people? For John, it's a package deal. 
in his mind, to receive the life made manifest is to be in fellowship with the body. Notice his logic here in the text. We write so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The implication is that those who have nothing to do with God's people, with the church, have little reason for confidence that they have been united to the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. So those who can't answer yes to both of those questions, so whether we're in fellowship with God, whether we're in fellowship with His church, those who can't say yes must run to Christ for mercy and grace. He can forgive the sins of the past. He can forgive the evils which plague us. He can place you on the right side of the divide where there is true fellowship and true unity. He can overcome the loneliness and the isolation of the world by placing you into the family of God. But you must believe. You must repent. And you must believe. On the other hand, for those who can answer affirmatively to those questions, there's reason for rejoicing. And indeed is the trajectory, don't you see, of our text. John writes in verse 4, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is wanting to shore up the faith of these, uh, uh, these believers who are under fire. And he longs to be able to rejoice over the faith and the fellowship of those who receive his message. So if you are here tonight and you have been given life by the life made manifest, then live out that fellowship that you've been given with Jesus and His people. That's the sort of life which leads to joy and rejoicing. So in 1 John 1, 1 1-4, we read of the life which was from the beginning, which was made manifest in the flesh, which was proclaimed in the church, and which leads to joyous fellowship. And that life is none other than Christ Jesus. So tonight, let us set our sights on that life. Let us live out of the life which He gives. And let us look forward to the life which He promises. Let us rejoice in the fellowship which we have with the Father, through the Son, together with all the church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us in the darkness, but rather the one who was from the beginning and all eternity was made manifest in the flesh in the course of human history that sinners might be saved. Lord, we praise you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith in that message, that you would use that message to transform us. Lord, and you would uh, nurture and strengthen the fellowship which flows out of that message. We pray, Lord God, that the fellowship which we have here would be a living testimony to the truthfulness of this word, this word of life. These things we pray. 
His name. Amen.